Well, good morning, everybody. Morning, morning. guys. Glad you're here. Morning, Laura. Morning. We are in our third installment of our series on prayer, and to this morning's study is on persuasive prayer. So there's a story of an old sharecropper who was charged with stealing his landlord's mule, you know, back in the old days when all this was going on. The landlord was a rich and domineering man and uh, didn't really have a lot of friends because he was such an unlikely, unlovely fellow. And the defendant had all the evidence that he was innocent, but the landlord still took him to court over this mule. So they had the court, the judge told the jury to retire back into the chambers, make a verdict, and they were in there five minutes and they came out. And then the judge said, have you reached a verdict, Mr. Foreman? And he said, yes, your honor, we have reached a verdict. He handed his paper to the clerk who handed it to the judge and the judge opened the paper and he said, we the jury find the defendant not guilty provided he returns the mule. <laughs> Now the judge got this, got very, very angry, slammed the gavel down on the table, and he said, folks, that is not a proper verdict. He says, you need to, need to, need to find the defendant guilty or not guilty, but none of this taking the mule back. So go back in the chambers and come back out when you've got a proper decision on this gentleman. So they went back in the chambers, they came back out after five minutes, and he said, do you have an official verdict? And they said, yes, your honor, we do. So they handed a paper to the clerk who handed it to the judge and he opened it up and said, we, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. P.S. He can keep the mule. <laughs> Bad jokes, guys. It doesn't get any better than this, so this is as good as it gets. So cute little story, but they were, the jury was trying to be creative in what they were doing. They didn't like the demands that they were given, the parameters that they were given to make the verdict, right? They didn't want to just say not guilty or guilty because they believed that under this cruel landlord, the guy deserves something more, which in the end, he got the mule. We are told in our prayer life that prayer is powerful, right? We're told that prayer creates action and prayer, God answers prayer. But we also struggle with the fact, like we talked about last week, that why should we pray? Because if God is God and God's gonna do his will ultimately, why should we even bother praying, right? Well, if you want to, turn me to Exodus 32. We're going to camp out there this morning in our third installment of The Power of Persuasive Prayer. Um, Exodus 32, we're going to find a prayer that Moses prayed in this persuasive prayer to God, and he intercedes for the people that have angered God. Now, a little history on Exodus 32 before we get there. Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Bible. We read this, right before we come to the story, we realize that four months previously, Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt. So this is still fresh in our mind. This isn't at the end of the 40 years. This is pretty, pretty early in their history of wandering to go to the promised land. So it's about four months earlier, Moses leads them out of Egypt. And it seems for a moment they were excited and they were happy for the first time in 400 years, they had freedom. They weren't having to build the pyramids or make the mortar for the bricks and they were excited. But then, the Israelites began to do something they were famous for. Do you know what they did? They grumbled, they complained. God leads them out of slavery, 400 years of slavery and hard labor, gets them out into the desert and leads them to the promised land and they start complaining. They complained about the waters of the Red Sea when they first show up there because they're like, oh my gosh, God has brought us out here to die. He's brought us to this dead end. So God clears the waters, they go through, and then the army of the Egyptians comes through, and what happens? 
the waters closed and destroyed the whole army. God just wiped out all their enemies. But they weren't happy. They wander on more. They get in the desert and they complain they don't have enough to eat. They're like, we don't like this manna thing. We want meat. They complain they don't have water. They, don't, they complain about all this stuff. And finally they get to a place in the Bible called Mount Horeb where the power of God is displayed in thunder and lightning. And God speaks the Ten Commandments to them. And in a sense, after that, they look at Moses and they essentially tell Moses in Exodus 20, 19, oh, we don't want to hear God's voice because it's scary. Moses, you speak to God for us and you just deal with him. We're going to be back here away from you. So ever since they've left Egypt, basically, God's provided them freedom. God's provided them protection. He's provided them food and water and everything. And all they can do is complain. To me, it's kind of like having kids, isn't it? You give them all this stuff, and all they do is what? Well, her piece of cake is bigger than my piece of cake. Well, I want more. Well, I want the blue one, not the red one. And these people are just complaining and complaining and complaining and complaining against a good God that is helping them. Well, God gets angry. And we pick up here in Exodus 32, starting at verse 7. I'm going to read out a New American Standard. And God speaks to Moses, the spokesperson. And this is what God says. He said, then the Lord spoke to Moses. And Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. He says, go down at once. In other words, go down to where all the people are. And he says, for your people. Notice the pronoun in there. God, this is God's chosen people. These are the Israelites, right? But what does God say in that one pronoun? He says, for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. In other words, God's being like, I'm washing my hands of these people. You're in charge, Moses. These are your people. And go down and look what they're doing. They're being naughty. Verse 8, they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. Notice the pronoun there. I. So your people to Moses. And God says, I commanded them, so they've turned away. He says, for they have made for themselves a molten calf and worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, they were an obstinate people, a stubborn people. Now, Moses, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, and I may, what? Consume them. Consume them, destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. So here's the picture. Moses is up, getting the Ten Commandments. He's up there. The people are bored down, waiting, and they're waiting for Moses to come down to hear what God has for them, and they get a little antsy, right? And they start doing stuff. Next thing you know, they decide, hey, let's con Moses' brother Aaron. He's a, he's a craftsman. Let's give him a bunch of gold that we have that we got from the Egyptians. Let's have him make a golden calf, and we'll worship this golden calf instead of God. And we'll say, this calf led us out of, out of Egypt. And God speaks to Moses and says, buddy, your kids are a mess. They are taking off. They're doing whatever they want to do. In fact, they've made an idol, which is going against my second command, that thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he's like, Moses, you better get down there. But he goes, I'm going to destroy them all. 
And he goes, I'll take you, Moses. I can create anything. I'll take you and make you a great nation, but I'm going to wipe my people out. Now, do you see a problem with that? Earlier in history, when God chose the Israelites, he said, I'm going to make a great nation. When he spoke to Abraham, and he said, I'm going to have them as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the sands in the sea. Now, have you ever tried recently to go to a nice beach in Hawaii, which maybe we should do as a church camp out, and we can all count the sands on the sea? It's overwhelming, right? It's crazy. Definitely. Definitely. It's a lot of sand. But God says, I'm going to wipe them out. And for a minute, it's like, well, God promised he would prosper these people. Now God says, Moses, your people are a mess. I'm going to wipe them out. Big issue. Well, again, back to the issue of prayer. We're told in Matthew 18, 19, it says this. I tell you that if two of you on earth agree on anything and you ask for it, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. It's a good promise in the Bible, right? Mark 11:24, Gospel of Mark, we read this. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. We like that one, right? John 15, 7 says this. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Another good verse, but that kind of sets the foundation for us. John 15, 7 says, if you remain in me. In other words, if you remain in God, and I remain in you, ask what you wish, and they'll be given to you. So there's the kicker of our persuasive prayer. We have to be in God's will, right? On the way down, Christy and I saw this nice little sports car. I don't know what it was. It looked like a little Lamborghini or something. I mean, it was about that far off the ground, nice sporty thing, and it's zooming as it goes by. And I kind of said a prayer, God, I'd like to have that car. God didn't answer my prayer. But we read here that if, if I ask, I should get, right? What's the problem with my prayer? It's all about me and what I want. It's not in God's will. So God said, Guess what? No. John 15, 7, if you remain in me. In other words, when we pray, we have to be in God's will. Again, prayer isn't changing God's mind to bend him to make him give us what we want. He's not some big spiritual Santa Claus that just says, hey, I just want to give you whatever you want. We'd all be millionaires, right? Christy would have a better looking husband. We'd have a big house. We'd have a lot of money. Everything would be perfect if we got what we wanted, right? But God says you need to be in my will to have your prayers answered. And that's the kicker. In prayer, we're not changing God's mind. God is changing us to come under his authority and his will. In the Lord's Prayer that we just watched in the video, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy, thy name. Thy kingdom come. Not my kingdom come. We pray... Lord, your kingdom come. So it's all about being in God's will. And we read in James 5, 16, it says, The prayer of a righteous man produces much. Righteousness is found where? In God. So again, the key for us this morning is persuasive prayers. We need to be in God. But here's where we struggle, picking up again from last week. We know that God's will will be done, so why should we pray if God's going to do what God's going to do? Really? I mean, what's the point? Well, we go back to Exodus 32, 
and we find out why we should pray in this prayer of Moses. So look back at Exodus 32 real quick. Verse 32, or chapter 32, verse 10. Interesting sentence in here. We read this. God says to Moses, he says, Now Moses, leave me alone, that my anger may burn against the people, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you a great nation. Now this verse seems pretty simple. Just two little sentences seems pretty simple. But what does God say to Moses? Moses, just leave me alone for a little bit. I'm going to wipe him out. Now, if God just did what God wanted to do, and that's all there was to it, why would he tell Moses to leave him alone? Why wouldn't he just take his little finger and just wipe out the whole nation, have the earth open up and swallow them up? Why would God look to Moses and say, Moses, just, just leave me alone. Let my anger just stew a little bit, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zap him and get rid of them all. Why would God say that? Well, I think it's the key to our per persuasive prayer. God is telling Moses, Moses, I'm going to do this. These are your people. They're going against my commands. Leave me alone, buddy. I'm going to wipe them out. God is giving Moses time to think about what's going on. I really don't believe that it was ever God's intent to wipe them out. I believe what God is doing here is the people are being rebellious. God is saying, Moses, they're your people. And God is giving Moses an opportunity to think about what is going on, to see if he is going to make the switch to be the leader of the people in God's way, or to kind of act on his emotions. Because over and over and over again, we've even read, in the, if you read the Old Testament, where Moses is frustrated with the people, right? I mean, he's the one that has to deal with them. He's the one that when they want to complain, who do they complain to? Him. He's the leader. Dude, we're eating manna. We want meat. Dude, we want water. Dude, we want this. Dude, it's too hot out here. Dude, we want this. Moses is getting all these complaints, and I'm sure he's not happy. And that's where God says, Moses, just leave me alone for a minute. Let me stew in my anger, and I'm going to wipe them out. Well, the people of Israel have been given to Moses by God. And Moses, for Moses, this is a test. To see if he will be God's leader or he will be his leader. Now, anyone ever be around people that really rub you the wrong way? Maybe they have that high-pitched, squeaky voice or they just do things that just irritate you and they do them again and again and again and again. And in a loving Christian fashion, what do you just want to do to them? You just want to strangle them, right? Take them out. Do something. Throw them in front of a bus. I mean, that's not a good thing to say in church, but that's how we feel, right? I mean, you just want to get rid of them. Well, here's Moses. And Moses is given a test to see how he will respond. Again, I really don't think God wants to destroy the people. God is, in essence, looking to Moses and saying, Moses, are you my man or are you a worldly man? What kind of decisions are you going to make when you have an obstinate people how are you going to lead them? My way or your way? Well, we all have that same question, don't we? You and I each get to choose how we act. And in a sense, God gives us sometimes these tests also. The question is, how are you going to act and what kind of decisions are you going to make? Are you going to make decisions based off of what God would have you do? Or are you going to make decisions based off your feelings? When those people irritate you and things go bad, are you going to throw your hands up and just be frustrated and be angry? 
or you're going to go to prayer and allow God to work in you. You see, there's a big difference in doing things our way off of emotion and how we feel versus doing things God's way. So we come to Moses, chapter 32, verse 11 to 14. Exodus, yes. What did I say? Moses. Moses. Well, I'm stuck on Moses right now. Exodus 32. God speaks to Moses in those first few verses we read and says, I'm going to wipe him out. Give me a minute. Let me stew my anger. I'm going to wipe him out. And Moses comes to God, and this is his prayer, and this is what we learned this morning. It says, verse 11, chapter 32. Then Moses entreated or came to the Lord his God. Notice the pronoun. His God. He knows that God owns him, right? You're either owned by the devil because you don't have salvation, or you're owned by God because you have salvation. There's no other options. So Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying, what evil intent did God bring them out just to kill them in a mountain and to destroy them off the face of the earth. Lord, turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? Your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars in the heavens. And all this land which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14 is interesting. So the Lord did what? Relented. Some versions say changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. So here's a question. Do you really think God changed his mind? I don't. I think this is a whole setup to put Moses in a place to test him to see whether he would be a man of God or a man of his own. So, first lesson we learned this morning. Moses had to understand his position of authority. Remember what God said? When God spoke to him, he says, go down to whose people? Your people. But yet, these are, this is God's chosen, chosen nation. These are God's people. God says, I will take this nation for my own. But now, he looks to Moses and he says, dude, your people are messing up down there. You need to go down and deal with it. Again, here's the test. Would Moses lead God's way, or would he lead his own way? Now, when you think of a great leader, what do you think of? I think of like the, you know, guy Spartacus in the movie 300. You know, he's built, he's buff, he's got this big sword and shield, and he's a macho man. I mean, he's had a beard since he's three years old, right? He's a man's man, you know? Or I think of some great sage, you know, he's very wise and powerful. Or maybe it's someone like some of our world leaders that are just tyrants. I mean, they just use force to get what they want done, right? This is our picture of leaders. But here's the challenge for Moses and for any Christian, any man or woman of God. A leader in God's kingdom isn't a tyrant. They may not be a very manly man or womanly woman. They may be pretty plain or ordinary because God loves to use ordinary people. God loves ordinary people and to be able to use them. To be a leader in God's kingdom, you have to be Christ-like. 
Now, Christ said something very interesting in the New Testament. He says, I didn't come to be served, but I came to what? To serve others. Here's the Son of God, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, comes to this world. He says, I didn't come here that you would all serve me. He goes, I came to serve you. And we read that in the New Testament. He came and he healed. He blessed. He brought many to salvation. In the upper room, as we shared in communion today, he served the other disciples. So to be a leader in God's kingdom... We're not that tyrant, we're not demanding, we're not pushing and telling people what to do. We become servants. And that is so counterculture to our world, isn't it? I mean, we all joke about the fact that if you're working and you have a manager that's just telling you what to do, we're not real happy, right? That's the world view of a manager or leader. God's view is a man or woman that will lead by example, that will have compassion, that will be long-suffering, be peaceable, willing to serve, and be patient, and work with the people that they have authority over. Now, two things to realize in God's kingdom, and this is what Moses was going, to, going through, to be a leader in God's kingdom, you need to be a servant, but also this, you need to take responsibility for those that you are over. You need to take responsibility for those that you are over. And I'll put it one step further, because the Bible says, for Christians, when you do your work, if you're laboring for someone as an employer, you do your work as what? As under the Lord, not under that person. Because that person is fallible and sinful just like you. They're, they have problems like you and I do. So God says, when you work, you work as under, you're working as unto God. So when you and I are called to be leaders for God in a job, in a home, over a group of people, in a family, whatever it is that God has given us leadership over, we need to take responsibility for that position. And that's, this is what that means. Their mess up is your mess up. Their failure is your failure. Now that doesn't sound like fun, does it? What happens in our world when somebody messes up at work or someplace? Well, it's the blame game. Well, you're out of here. I'm, I'm done with you. I, I can't, I, I don't have the patience to put up with you, right? We've all heard that, right? I'm just done with you. I'm over. I'm, I'm, I'm through with it. In God's kingdom, it's radically different. Because God says, when you are an authority, a leader over those people, whatever they do is your responsibility. If someone fails... Well, you own the failure. If somebody messes up, you own the mess up. Because in essence, where God tells Moses, he says, go down to your people. Whoever you have any authority over, whether it's work or people or a family or even yourself, God says, you need to do things my way. And that means whatever happens, you take responsibility. Now here's where the world has a problem. Somebody messes up at work and a lot of leaders are like, hey, hands off, not my fault. I didn't train them that way. They were the ones that totally messed up. God says, no, you take ownership for that because those people are under your protection. You take ownership of them. Second thing is this. 
instead of going ballistic on them, getting rid of them, giving up on them, God says, you need to work with them. You need to be patient. You need to train them. You need to come alongside them, which is the image of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit comes alongside us and is a helper. You need to understand from their point of view, and you need to work with them to change them. This is radically different than our world that we live in, isn't it? Because God's way is so counterculture. So God says, Moses, I gave you the responsibility over the people. In essence, God says, I want to see what you're going to do now. Moses' prayer wasn't really a prayer that persuaded God to change his mind. Moses' prayer was Moses learning to come under God's guidance and to lead like God would lead. And to prove that, if you want to, turn with me to Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Hold your finger in Exodus 32. Turn New Testament to Acts chapter 9, verse 4. New Testament. This is the story of Saul before he became the Apostle Paul. Remember, Saul is this religious guy. He is going out and he thinks he's got this great mission. So he's going out and he's torturing and imprisoning and killing Christians because he thinks they're bad. And in this moment, this is right where God speaks to Saul and changes his heart to become a Christian and become the Apostle Paul as we know him. But Jesus says something interesting to Saul. Now, what is Saul doing? He's on a journey. He's out hunting Christians, you know, kind of like Elmer Fudd, hunting that wascal wabbit. Remember him in the cartoons? Saul is hunting Christians to torture them, to imprison them, to destroy their families, to get rid of them. And Jesus speaks to Saul on this road to Damascus. But he says something interesting. If you look at Acts 9, verse 4, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Jesus takes it personally. Now, Jesus is ascended into heaven. It's after the crucifixion. He's ascended in heaven. Saul is attacking people. But what does Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? You know what Jesus is saying right here? These Christians are my people. And if you persecute them, you persecute me. If you imprison them, you're imprisoning me. If you harm them, you're harming me. You see the correlation here, what Jesus is doing? He's taking full responsibility for the people of God, Christians. And he looks at Saul and he says, you're not just messing with them, because when you mess with them, you mess with me. And this is what God is doing back with Moses in chapter 32. He's saying, Moses, are you just going to let me destroy them and wipe them out? Or are you going to take responsibility for these people? Here's the kicker for us. Who do you have authority over? Who are you a leader over? Who do you have influence over? Who do you work for? Well, we can all give the worldly answers, but the spiritual answer is, wherever you have that influence, God has given you that authority and a position of leadership to be there. The question for you and I that we learn, just like Moses is, are we going to lead in God's way? Or are we going to lead in the world's way? Are we going to be patient, graceful, forgiving, compassionate, long-suffering? You see, God is all about relationship, right? And how long do relationships last? Well, in this world, not very long, because if you make me mad, I'll dump you and get somebody else, right? Isn't that our mentality? 
But God's view of a relationship is that when you are in relationship with him and salvation, it's for all eternity. God is all about the long term, not the instant gratification, not the fast and quick and easy, not the here and now. It's about long term. And God says, so if you have influence over anybody in your prayer life, instead of blasting them and saying, go ahead, destroy them, what should we be doing? We should be praying for them and asking God to show us how to lead them. So, lesson one. Moses had to understand his position of authority under God. And you and I have to understand our position of authority under God and how we work and how we lead. Number two. Moses didn't presume to change God's mind. Notice in Moses' prayer in chapter 32, he didn't tell God what to do. Instead, Moses did something interesting, and he humbled himself before God. He says, come on, God, please. These are your people. In essence, my modern version of what Moses is saying is this. God, look, I know they messed up, but they're really a good people. I think they could do better. God, just, just give them another chance. Let me work with them a little bit. Man, wouldn't it be awesome if everybody in the world had that attitude? Well, yeah, they messed up, but give me one more chance to work with them. Give me a little bit of time. Let me work with them. We can, we can make it better. I think of marriages. If, if husbands and wife had this attitude about being compassionate like this, we'd have a lot better marriages and they'd last more than two years in the United States, right? Instead of getting angry and frustrated with the other person, instead of replacing them, we would be patient. And we'd be going, God, I know we got in this fight. I know we're not agreeing with each other. I know we're angry, but God, give us a little more time to work this out. Teach me to speak to that other person to bless them. God, give me a little bit more time. So Moses comes before God and he says, Lord, I know they blew it, but I think they're, they can do better. God, just, just give a little time. Come on, Lord, these are your people. These, Yeah, they, they sinned, they messed up, they did some bad stuff. They rebelled against you, but I think we can work through this. That's, in essence, what he's asking God to do. Not to tell God, God, don't wipe them out. You said you wouldn't do that, but saying, Lord, give us another chance. Give us a break. Give us another chance. So the question is, how many chances do we give people? How many times do they fail us, and as a Christian, we continue to work with them? Well, Christians are not people that don't have a spine or backbone, right? We do have boundaries we need to set. There is a right. There is a wrong. That's right. Right? And if you cross the line, there's a consequence. That said... If the person is willing to repent, just like when we come to salvation, then we need to work with them. To see how many times we need to be long-suffering, let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew, first chapter of the New Testament. Jesus is speaking to, to the apostle Peter. And Peter is on like a high horse because he thinks he's got this great answer. So Peter came up to Jesus and he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? So culturally at this time, if someone sinned and did something against you and harmed you, if you forgave him like three times, well, that was like, ah. 
So Peter's thinking he's being super spiritual here. And he walks up, he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive him? Like seven times? Like I'm going double duty here, Lord. This is awesome. But here Jesus is answer. Jesus says in verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's 490 times. Now imagine you're Peter. Lord, I've got to keep track of 490 times before I could not forgive him. Well, if you're keeping track, you're already messed up because that's the point, right? The point Jesus is saying is don't keep track of it. Don't keep a record of wrongdoing. In other words, Jesus says, when you sin, how many times do I forgive you? If you ask and you repent every single time, right? If you repent. And so Jesus is telling Peter, if there's repentance there, if there is a turning, if they're not being obstinate, then forgive them and work with them again. We go back to Moses. And the question is, how many times should Moses work with the people if they repent? As many as it takes, right? I mean, when we're in that bad situation, when we're in a place where we have messed up bad, how many chances do we beg people for? Just one more. No matter how many times it is, we just want, just give me one more chance, right? Now, if there's not repentance, there's a consequence. But if there's repentance, God calls us to work and be gracious with those people. Modern culture says, if you fail me, I am what? Done with you. If you don't live up to my expectations, I will find someone that does. If you don't make me happy, I'll what? I'll find someone that will. Well, there's some biblical problems with this mindset as a Christian, isn't there? First, it's not biblical. That is a very temporary, all-about-me expectation. It's saying, if you don't do this my way or for me, then goodbye. That's how the world sees things, right? I mean, nowadays in our society, something breaks down, what do you do? Well, just go buy a new one. You don't try and fix it. This is kind of sad to say, but... Yesterday, I took a couple loads to the dump, and someone had a wheelbarrow there. So I picked it up, brought it home. You know what the problem with the wheelbarrow was? The bolts had gone through the bottom of the wheelbarrow, so I took a couple washers that cost me 80 cents, put them back on there, fixed it, and the wheelbarrow works just fine for 80 cents. But we live in a throwaway society. We live in a society that says, if you break, if you don't do this for me, if you don't meet my expectations, you're gone. This is so unbiblical for Christians because the Bible says we are long-suffering. We are patient. We are loving. We are caring. We are forgiving. We are all the same things that Jesus Christ is, aren't we? Which takes a lot more work than replacing. Second, what about this issue of somebody making you happy? That's not biblical either. You ever get frustrated with someone because, well, they just don't make me happy anymore? Well, so what? Grow up and get over it. Happiness is a feeling, right? You ever have feelings that come and go? You ever feel happy and then all of a sudden you're mad? And then you're sad? And then you're happy again? Here's the issue. Biblically, nobody can make you happy. 
I dare you, all of you, try and make me happy right now because I'm ticked at you. Try and make me happy. Go for it. Come on, I dare you, make me happy. God loves you. Well, that's good saying, but that's just for Ken. Good example. The fact is, nobody can make you happy. Just like if you are long-suffering and patient and you're relying on the Spirit of God, nobody can make you mad. Nobody can make you mad. I had three boys and survived. I've lived through all of them, and they're adults. There were times they tried to make me mad just because they wanted a reaction out of me. You know what? I had a choice. I could choose to be mad and give in to their expectations, or I could what? Choose to not give in to their expectations and still be happy. My children have blessed me. My children have disappointed me. My children have messed up. My children have done good. But through it all, I've still loved them, and I've never given up on them. You see, we can't make other people angry or happy. That only comes from within. And I believe that true happiness and contentment and joy only comes from salvation in Jesus Christ. Because in this world, all we live in is a sinful, broken world that wants more. Right? More. Well, if I get a raise of 40 bucks an hour, well, I want 50. Well, if I have three donuts, I want four. Right? We're always wanting more. And here in God's Word, God says, when I brought you salvation, it's complete, it's finished, you can't take from it, you can't add to it, it's whole, it's all there is. So, Moses is having to learn that he's not changing God's mind, but he's pleading to God to not destroy the people. In other words, you know what Moses is doing when he's saying, God, give him another chance. God is, Moses is placing himself under God's authority and saying, God, you are the God that can do this. Allow me to be the instrument to work with them, but give them grace, give them forgiveness, give them another chance. So practical application. When you're a leader or have authority over someone and they do some real bonehead decision and they fail you, how do you respond? Do you respond God's way? Gracefully, patient, long-suffering, forgiving? Or do you respond out of anger or spite? Number three, last thing, Moses goes back to God's promises in his prayer. Remember what he says? He prays that, he says, remember, he goes like, he's reminding God. He's like, God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, the forefathers way back when, the beginning of Christianity? Remember when you made your promises to them? Remember them, Lord? In other words, what he's kind of saying is, God, remember, you made a promise to them. You promised that you would multiply them and help them to prosper. And if you wipe the people out, they're not going to prosper. So Moses is reminding God of the promises that God made. But do you think God forgot his promises? Not at all. God knew his promises all along. The promises were to remind Moses of God's plan for the future. In other words, God was kind of moving in Moses is first Moses has realized he's got to lead God's way, right? He's got to take responsibility for the people. He's got to work with them. That's the first thing. He has to understand his position of authority in God. Second thing, he has to presume not to change God's mind, but to come under God's will and how God would do things. Now he's having these promises, and it's not that God's forgot 
about the forefathers and the promises God made, it's for Moses to remember, okay, that's right. We had a little moment of anger here, but you know what? The sun's going to come up tomorrow, and it's going to come up the next day, and the next day. This is a long-term thing. Parents have a baby. They keep that baby for what? 4.7 days, and they give them up? How long are you a parent once you have a child? Forever. When they're 21, that goes away, right? You're not a parent anymore, right? No, they come back for money and food. When they're 48, are you done being a parent? No. When they're 76, are you done being a parent? No. You might be dead by then, but you're still a parent, right? Point is, when you have a child, you become a parent and it never stops. Just because they get a certain age doesn't mean you're not a parent anymore. You're still a parent to that child, right? And Moses has to learn through God's promises that God made a promise way back here that he would multiply this people. And that's got to sink into Moses' mind so that he realizes this is a long-term thing. Practical application for us. Do we have temporary lives or are we looking for an eternal life in heaven? eternal. Our call on this world is to bring as many people to heaven as possible, right? You can't bring people to heaven when you're angry and you're giving up on them and you're replacing them. You have to be loving and patient and kind and long-suffering and forgiving. You have to work with them. You have to be Jesus Christ to them. You may be the only Bible that somebody ever sees, right? So we need to keep in mind, like Moses, the third point, that our goal is a long-term goal. I mean, the Bible talks about, for Christians, this world is not their home. It's like you're traveling through like a tourist, right? Where is our real home? Someday in heaven with Jesus Christ. And that lasts for all eternity. That's a long time. So Moses is being reminded that God has a long-term plan here and realizing God's not giving up on them. God's testing Moses to see how he'll lead them. The persuasive prayer of Moses really wasn't to change God's mind. The persuasive prayer of Moses was to be humbled before God, to come under his authority, and see things God's way. You see, the real person that changed this prayer wasn't God. Who was it? It was Moses. It was Moses. What happens next? Exodus 30, 32. Chapter, verses 30 to 34 says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. I mean, he's still calling sin, sin. He says, You've committed a great sin, period. Then there's another sentence. He says, But I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. You see what Moses has learned? He's like, God's given me these people to be over. It's my responsibility to care for them. So Moses says, yeah, you guys have blown it big time. But let me go to God and perhaps he will forgive you. And then he goes on to say, oh, what a great sin. This is to the Lord. What a great sin these people have committed. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, Lord, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. Notice what Moses says in that last sentence. He doesn't say to blot the people out, to wipe them out. What does he say? Lord, they're my responsibility. And if you can't forgive them, 
than take my life in their, in, in their place. You see what Moses has learned through this persuasive prayer? It comes back to us and how we choose to act in Jesus Christ, to not give up on people, to love them in spite of how they act and what they do, to forgive them, to work with them, and to realize it's all for God's glory. In the power of persuasive prayer, we are the ones that are changed because we are humbled before God and we intercede for those other people and it's like, Lord, use me to minister to them. Use me to lead them. Use me to be compassionate to them. Use me to be forgiving to them. God, you've given me authority over this people in whatever setting it is. Use me to bless them. Does it make sense what God is doing here? This persuasive prayer? 